we, we're talking about, as we begin 2010, 2010, uh, we're talking about this series called Destination. And again, don't try to follow that GPS. I'm not quite sure where it will take you. So don't try to, don't look for the directions there. But we're trying to get to a destination. And that's what we want to think about here in these weeks. And, and the destination can be thought of in a couple of different ways. So I'm kind of thinking of it at two levels. One of them is the destination of where God would have us to, to arrive at when we come to the last days of our lives. Really, you know, when we come to the end of our journey here on earth, where will we be? What will we be able to say about the life that we have, uh, have lived? And what will be the destination that we have arrived at at that point? But at a different level, kind of a more you know, close-to-home level, uh, for, for many of us, what about at the end of this year, as we finish the next leg, maybe, of this journey, the next lap around, at the end of 2010, what, what destination will we have arrived at? And, uh, you know, we're, we're basically saying that you don't just kind of uh, wake, you know, go to sleep and wake up one day and you're at the destination. We're, we're saying that you have to make some right turns to get to the destination that God is leading us to. Now, I set out for us last week a, a, a destination that I think is a great one for us to shoot for. It was the Apostle Paul's destination that he arrived at at the end of his life. This man who wrote you know, a good portion of the New Testament letters to various churches that he had helped start or had encouraged along the way. And at the end of 30 years of ministry, at least, he wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and he said these words. I'm going to put up here for you again from the book of uh, 2 Timothy, where he said these just these simple words. I have, let's read them together. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I just kind of, just leave that up there for a second. I just kind of thought, wow, if there's going to be a destination that we would arrive at, would this not be a good one? For us to be able to say this at the end of our journey of life or at the end of this year, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And I just, I want to be able to say that. I want you to be able to say that. And so again, we don't just kind of wake up one day and, and say, hey, Looky, looky there, I fought the good fight. No, we have to make right turns and move in the appropriate direction so that we can get to this destination. So last week I just laid out the first right turn that we can make, and that's simply the right turn to Jesus. It just says, turn into the love of Jesus. Turn right into who he is as a person and into his willingness and his desire to enter right into our hearts and into our lives, to live in us, to encourage us, to forgive us and to become the Lord and the leader of our lives. If we miss that turn, then our whole path will be off. We'll never get to the destination that God would have for us if we miss that turn. It's absolutely essential. And I hope that, that you began that turn last week or you've made it before and you're, you're turning into Jesus with all that you, all that you have. Today, though, I want to take, talk about a, a, second, a second turn or a second direction, really, that we need to go in order to arrive at the destination where we can say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And, um, and, and that is the direction, really, of, of no turning at all, but just going, just going straight ahead. And, and, and in terms of straight ahead today, I really want to think, especially in, in regard to the moral choices that we are making 
from day to day in the lives that, that we lead. Moral choices regarding all sorts of things, but, but just you know the, the relationships that we have, our sexuality, the entertainment choices that we have before us, the, the way we spend our money, the way we interact with, with folks, all these different things that, that play into the, the sort of the sort of code of conduct that is appropriate for the people of God. And so I want us to think today about going straight ahead, moving in the right direction, because here's the thing, and I just, this, this idea, this theme kind of, I think the Lord just kind of put it on my heart because it's, it's, very, it's very personal to many of us, right? And, and as a pastor, you know, we don't go a year without hearing about some pastor, some religious leader who has made a, a, a horrible moral decision and, 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 and just brought great devastation both to himself or herself and to the church and to the kingdom. But it spreads beyond that. I mean, we, we read about uh, you know, political leaders and athletes and celebrities, and you know, these are out on the front pages perhaps, and the poor moral choices they make and how it can just bring ruin to their reputation and their careers and all these kinds of things. But, but I just begin to think that it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a celebrity or an athlete. For just normal, just normal folks, just normal folks like all of us, that, that poor moral choices or a series of poor moral decisions, can, there, perhaps there can be nothing that can more quickly derail us in our journey to the destination that God would have for us than, than these kinds of, of choices. And not only can they ruin our reputation and our careers and those kinds of things, but they can, they can you know, just think about the effect that these kinds of choices can have on our families and, and on our, our future, really. And, and for the follower of Christ, just think about how these moral choices can have an impact on, on our, our lives of faith. You know, how many people have we known, perhaps, who were walking with Jesus but made a poor moral decision and it got them off track and, and, and before you knew it, they were just walking far from God and how quickly these, these choices can derail us. So I just thought, man, we have to talk about this and we have to be very open and honest and hear about what Scripture has to say about, um, about our moral decisions. Now, the truth is that in our day, speaking about morality is rather out of fashion. Right? I mean, for me, even to say the word morality seems just kind of, you know, negative or there's connotations. It's just, so, it's just so moral of you, you know, of me to say that. And, and I mean, there's, there's, you know, negative connotations, the moral police, right? Or uh, even, you know, what was perhaps a good organization at the beginning, the moral majority, you know, now for many, it has bad connotations. And so, you know, pushing our morals on people. And so in our day, really, people have reacted against any speaking or talking about morality. And even what I've found is that even if people are, you know, are going the wrong way, we're moving the wrong direction away from where God would have us to be in terms of our moral living, we don't want to hear about it. We don't want to, we don't want to you know, Pay attention to it. We want to ignore it even, even if we're going in the wrong direction. And it kind of reminded me, I want to show you a little movie clip. I, I think it applies, but if not, you'll hopefully get a great chuckle. It's one of, from one of my favorite movies, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And uh, these guys are going the wrong way. Watch this. Look at that 
guy on the wrong side of the highway. He's going to kill somebody. Joker wants to race. Don't race. That's ridiculous. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! You want something? Uh, he's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. You're going in the wrong direction. You're going to kill somebody. Decisions are kind of like driving the wrong way on a highway, going the wrong direction. And, and this is what I was talking about. Even when people are telling us that we're going the wrong way, when we're in that state and we're moving in the wrong direction, we don't even want to hear it or we're unable to hear it. Now, planes, trains, and automobiles is hilarious. And, and this is a hilarious scene. But we who live in Santa Barbara know that people driving the wrong way on a highway is not funny at all. And, and I was looking at it again even just this morning that, that this last year, 2009, uh, five different times people were caught driving the wrong way on the 101 and at least twice there were accidents in which people lost their lives. And, and so while we laugh like crazy and it's appropriate to laugh at John Candy and Steve Martin, who can't? I mean, that's hilarious that right there. Um, it, it, is, it is so not funny. It is so not funny when, when folks are going the wrong way, either on a highway. And, and, and when, we, when we begin to chuckle or laugh or kind of, you know, push aside any discussion of morality as being unfitting for today's culture, I want to tell us as well that we're, we're, we're missing a very serious a very serious discussion, uh, indeed. So we need, to, uh, we need to pay attention to it. Now, I don't really want to talk to the people who are away from God today. If you're not necessarily a follower of Christ today and you're here, then this is kind of for you, but not so much. I mean, in the world today, there's something called moral relativity. And that is basically how most folks who are not followers of Christ and just kind of in the world, that's how they live, which basically 
doesn't mean you're related to morality. It means that, that um, all morality is just kind of up for grabs. What's good for you is good for you. Bad for you is bad for you. But it might not be the same for me. It's all relative, in other words. There is no moral authority, no moral absolutes. Just whatever it works for you, it works for you. And whatever for me is good. And, and usually that's based on what, you know, what uh, makes me feel good. <laughs> And, or what works out the best for me, then that's good, right, in the world. The problem is that even in the church, we as followers of Christ have not done so well about talking uh, about ethics and morality. We haven't been too clear in our speaking about it and how we actually live it out. And, and so that's really who I want to talk to today, those of us who are followers of Christ, in helping us to address this question of morality in, in a more in a way that's more uh, clear and precise. Here's the deal. In, in the church, when we talk about morality, people often fall into two different camps. And maybe you've been in or are in one of these two camps. But, but the first camp is those people who make the Christian faith all about morality. You know, the old hymn that says, My hope is built on nothing less than a list of do's and don'ts. You know, that's not what it says. But that's what these people make it out to be. And, and if I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then it, it is going to be because I am following a certain code of ethical and moral conduct. That's what makes God accept me. That's what makes God love me. That's what allows me to be a Christian. And, and really what this camp has produced are a lot of legalistic um, Christians, judgmental Christians, Christians who really just don't get it completely and really who aren't a lot of fun to be around, just to add that in there. But on the other camp, we have, you know, the other extreme, we have these folks who are followers of Jesus, good-willed folks, but who have decided that, that salvation and that a relationship with God is all about grace. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about love to the point, while that's all good, but to the point that our moral and ethical behavior becomes non-essential and not really that important. Following a, a, a famous theologian that I won't mention, but he had a, he had a saying that simply said, I'm, I'm saved and I'm a sinner at the same time. And, and many folks have just kind of bought into that way of thinking that I may be saved, but I'm I'm always going to be a sinner. I'm always going to be filled with sin and disobedience in my life. And it's never going to change. And so to speak of, of a morally pure life, to speak of actually making decisions that are, that are pleasing to God, is really just to bring about guilt and shame and isn't really worth um, doing at all. And, and unfortunately, this has produced some Christians who's whose lives look no, no different than people who aren't following Christ and, and who are really Christians who are missing out on the full blessing of what God really has in mind and had in mind when he sent his son, Jesus. And so neither of these two camps are, are good ones. And I hope that you'll at least agree with me at that point. Maybe not, but I, I don't believe they're, they're good ones. In other words, we need to find somewhere in, in the middle and, and, and I was just thinking about this problem in, in the church is, is not a good one. It's, it's a terrible problem, obviously. 
and it's producing some, some terrible results. And, and we see this in the church as much as we see it in the world, really. And there's some high costs for immorality. And I just want to mention these to you briefly, and I think you know these, but there's some high costs of, of immoral choices. And the first one, uh, for, for believers even, is a personal cost. And if you haven't thought about this lately, then I just want you to think about this right now. If this sermon does nothing more than just serve as an alarm clock or a wake-up call for some of us this morning who may be kind of in some immoral kind of places of making decisions or, or doing things, then hopefully this is a little bit of a wake-up call. First one's a personal cost. You never measure it. You never think about it until it's too late. That's just the reality. But, but the personal costs of immoral choices are huge. I mean, the, the brokenness of relationships, the, 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 the family members that we can hurt, the, the, um, the loss of our own physical health and our emotional health and our spiritual health, the loss of not only relationships with other people, but, but potentially the loss of our relationship even with God, as we talked about uh, a little bit earlier. So there's a personal cost. There's also a community cost. Uh, the, um, the impact of our moral decisions goes far wider than you ever imagined. The impact of our good, good choices, we never really measure as much, but, but it's not hard to, to measure the impact of our immoral choices and the high cost on those around us, whether it be, again, families, children, spouses, parents, you know, uh, loved ones who are going through pain because of the choices that we're making, or whether it's just the, the impact on, on friends and, and other people. Again, the fallout is, is far beyond anything that we can imagine. Then there's a third one, though. There's the kingdom cost that I don't think people often think about. But that's just simply this. When we make immoral choices, when we, when we go in a direction that is against what God would, would have for us, then not only is there a cost to ourselves and the people around us, but there's a cost to what God is wanting to accomplish in the world. If we really believe that every person has been created with a unique purpose and a plan, and God has gifted us uniquely and specially to accomplish His will and his plan in the world around us, then when we, in a sense, weaken ourselves or, or take ourselves out of the ballgame completely, then that has an effect on the purposes of God and his kingdom. Now, is God big enough to overcome that? Absolutely he is. And, and praise God for that. But still, the loss to ourselves, for ourselves, and for the church. I mean, when people make immoral choices within a church body, is the church affected by that and the effectiveness of the ministry? Absolutely. And, uh, and so the high costs of immorality, personal costs, community costs, the kingdom costs. And so what this is, is driving in me is if we've got these two, two extremes that are inappropriate and we have this, you know, this high cost of, of this immorality even in the church, then we, we need to get it straight. And we need to begin to get it straight and move straight ahead even this morning by getting back to what God has to say about it in his word. Uh, the... the one of my favorite books that I read in seminary, I actually did read the books that they gave us to read in seminary. One of my favorites was simply titled The Moral Vision of the New Testament. And I love that because I think it says it, captures it well, that, that throughout the pages of the entire Bible, but especially in the New Testament as Jesus comes to teach us, there is, there is a lot of specifics, but as you read the whole thing, there is just this vision of, of what our morality is to be as we respond to what God has done for us. And I just want to, I, I chose one passage in particular that I, that I think hits at it pretty well from Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, that I think captures the essence of this vision very well. So would you stand with me? Let me just read it to us this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, I'll read it. You can follow along on the screen. And uh, let's listen to these words very carefully. They're, they're power, powerful words. 
And at the end, I'll say uh, the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. Paul writes, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, would you read this part with me? Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let me read. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. And you can have a seat. It's interesting, as I read this passage, I didn't hear any, I didn't, I didn't find Paul anywhere saying, do your best. I didn't find Paul anywhere in here. I kept looking for it. Good luck, I hope it works out for you. I, I kept searching for some sort, of, some sort of outlet, some sort of, you know, don't really worry about it, but if it were, you know, if it'd be fitting to your life, then go ahead and live like this. Now, it's pure imperative. It's pure instruction. But it's imperative. This is a little Greek lesson for you. It's imperative that is based on indicative. It is instruction because of something that has already happened. You see, Paul is writing to Christians here. Paul's not writing to just folks out in the world. Paul's writing to Christian believers. And in fact, in just a few chapters earlier, Paul has, has written some of those beautiful words that Scripture has when he wrote to these same believers and he said, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not of yourselves, he says, so that it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's the indicative of the, the very fact that they have been saved, not by anything that they've done, not by anything, some way that they could earn it, but it's simply because of the grace and love of God in response to that they have been saved. 
They are followers of Jesus because of the love of God. And that's a beautiful, a beautiful state that he is writing to them in. But now he says, live it out. Live like it. And so the imperative that he gives, the instruction he gives, is not a precondition for their salvation. It's an expression of that salvation. It's the living out, the expressing of what God has already done in them, now to be lived out in the life in which they live. And so I, I, there's, there's lots that he says here, but, but in, in doing this, he brings out a few key truths that I just want to, to kind of draw out for us this morning. And the first is this, that in this passage, there is a call to moral excellence. There's a call to moral excellence that is upon every believer, not just for the superstars, not just for the pastors, not just for the board members, but for every believer. There is a call, an invitation to moral excellence. Just like human children are to pattern their lives after their human fathers, uh, Paul writes, follow God, be imitators of God here. And then he says, not only that, but live a life of love just as the one that Jesus expressed and demonstrated to us when he went to the cross. No greater examples for us, right? No higher calling, perhaps, than to make our lives following the pattern that God has set for us and that his son Jesus has set out for us as well. Um, and, and then he comes to this little part that I just love, this little phrase in verse 3. And I've just written little parts of it here for you. But he says, Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. So on. And then this. Uh, because these are improper for God's holy people. Sexual immorality. And the other ones he says there, if you don't have your scripture, uh, impurity or greed. Any kind of impurity or greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. People. And, and really, most likely, the scholars think that even when he's writing about impurity and greed, the original language was really pointing back to sex, really pointing back to sexuality and the problems they were having in that day. Sounds like today, right? Sounds like today. And, and so he says these are improper for God's holy people. Here's the reason for our, one reason at least, for us to live these morally excellent lives because they're improper. Other, other activities are improper for God's holy people. I have some, some shoes in my house, and, and two pair in particular that are very special to me. And, and one is my uh, pair of Adidas uh, basketball high tops. Oh, I love lacing those on. Because you know what it means? It means I'm going to play basketball. They, they are set apart for my use on the basketball court. I, I don't even wear them to the gym. I wear other shoes to the gym. So I don't get, like, outside dirt on my basketball shoes. Okay? I have another pair that, that are growing more and more special to me, and those are my soccer cleats. They're Nike. They're, they're Tiempo. They're, they're, they're affordable ones, but because uh, <laughs> um, I'm not that great of a soccer player. But they, they, I got these cleats, and, and I don't even wear them when I go to the soccer field. By the way, 2 o'clock today, Foothill, Sunday afternoons, almost every Sunday we're playing soccer right over here. You're all invited to come. Uh, or watch, even, <laughs> sure. Uh, anyway, my soccer cleats, I, I don't even wear them to the, to the field. I, I put them on when I get there so I don't wear the cleats down, you know, on the concrete. Uh, so, so here I have, and, and I had these two pairs of shoes, and I was thinking about this, how, how strange it would be, how, how absurd it would be 
If I were to drive out to Westmont like I do every Tuesday and Thursday morning at 6 a.m., walk into the gymnasium, open up my bag, and pull out my soccer cleats, strap them on, and walk out on that basketball court with my soccer cleats on. It's crazy. I would never, ever think to do it. Nor would I think to bring my basketball high tops to the grassy field and lace up the high tops and say, all right, let's go get them, boys, and try to, you know, get some traction out of those basketball cleats. I, I just wouldn't. It's absurd. You would never think about doing that. Not only would I get made fun of greatly, it just wouldn't work. It would be, it would be out of the picture. You see, those shoes are set apart for their purpose, and to use them for any other purpose just does not fit. When Paul says, if you can go back to that scripture really quick, when Paul says these are improper for God's holy people, you know what holy people means? Set apart. God's holy people who are set apart for a purpose. And God's people, once we've come into a relationship with God, we are set apart for his purposes. We are set apart to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish and nothing else. And so to even think about setting ourselves apart for sexual immorality or for impurity or for greed of any kind, it just doesn't compute. It just doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. It's, it's, we, we make it work, you know, we still do it, but it's not how it's supposed to be. When we're set apart for a purpose, we're set apart for that purpose and not for some other. And so he says, not even a hint. Wow. Not even a hint. I don't know if I can, you know, walk from here to the end of the driveway without a hint of sexual immorality coming across in some way or another. Much less go home and turn on your TV or open a magazine or anything like this. I mean, sexual immorality is all around us. We are immersed in it. And so, and so what Paul says here is don't get on the slippery slope. Don't tell coarse jokes. Don't have improper conversation. Don't talk about it as if it doesn't matter. Don't make light of it because once you begin to do that, you, you set an environment, you create an atmosphere in which it doesn't, it's not that big of a deal. And before you know it, you're down the slippery slope and you're making decisions that you never would have made before. And, and, you're, and you're bringing about devastation that you could never, ever uh, experience or even imagine. So he says, don't even mess around with it. Not even a hint. Now, here's the reality. If there's not going to be a hint, we're, we're not going to be very successful <laughs> at not doing this. And so while, while he, doesn't, you know, he doesn't pull any punches here, what this forces us to realize is that if we're going to have any success in this, then we're going to have to depend on a power greater than ourselves. That's the whole point of the Scripture, really, that we're going to have to depend on a power greater than ourselves if we have any hope to live out this kind of a moral, excellent life, morally excellent life. And so the second truth that I really want to draw out here is simply this, that, that we need to have the, the belief in, a, in the possibility of a transformed life. We need to, we need to believe that, that the grace that saved us as Christians the grace that found us where we were and brought us into this relationship with God is, is the same grace that can find us in our sinful state and, and transform us and make us new into people who can live these morally excellent lives. That this grace can be at work in a continuous pattern to bring us to this, this transformation of, of life. What we need to realize, what Paul wants us to realize, is that when you come to faith in Christ, you do much more than 
punch your ticket for heaven. You know, there's how many Christians are walking around today who, who just, that's what they understood their, their conversion experience to mean for them. Sweet, I'm going to heaven. Yes. And praise God for that. We rejoice in that. But Paul wants us to know it's, we've done much more than purchase our eternal fire insurance here when we come into faith with, with God. What we've done is we have opened the door. We've opened the door for the hand of God to come right into our core and to begin to make us new and to begin to transform us and to change our perspective, to change our view of the world, to change our view of other people around us, to change our understanding of the, the, the images and the media and all the things that are around us to give us a new perspective, to give us a new strength, to do all this work in us. And that's what we've opened the door to, friends. And if we close the door to that, then we've stopped ourselves short of what God fully desires to do in our hearts and in our lives. And so I love how he says it. Well, really quick, he, he, one guy I, wrote, just, I read, wrote this. He said, obedience is possible at all only because God has broken the power of sin and begun the work of conforming believers to the image of Jesus Christ. John Wesley liked to talk about the relative change that happened when we came in conversion. Jesus, our God forgives us for our sins. He justifies us. He makes us right. It's a relative change in a sense. But then he also liked to talk about a real change that begins the transforming work of our lives, connecting our faith with our action, connecting our salvation with our sanctification. And I love it how Paul writes it here in verse 8. It just says it so well. For you were once darkness. And I'll Catch this. It doesn't say once you were in darkness, but once you were darkness. But now you are light. You're not in the light. You are light. You have been changed. So now live as children of light. Live as children of light. Um. Many, many scholars think that Paul was actually maybe copying some baptismal uh, instruction uh, for, for this part of his letter. That, that these words, perhaps, especially this part where it says, for you were once darkness, were what they said to the candidates as they came for baptism. And, and, and as they came up out of the waters, they would say those words that he quotes there, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Signifying that in, in conversion, in baptism, we leave behind what we were, and we become something brand new, something that we will continue to become. It's, we're not finished products by any means, but we, we become something new that we continue to become even more as the days go on. Not only does God want to deal with the, the, the sin in our lives, but he wants to deal with the sinners. He wants to deal with us. He wants to make us new. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite TV shows that I rarely watch is um, Extreme Makeover, Home Edition. And you know that one, right? Maybe you've seen it. And uh, you've heard me maybe talk about this before, but I love it because, you know, they, 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 they always find this family. I don't know how they find these families, but they find these families for which... The home that they are living in is horribly inadequate. You know, it's like eight kids and one bedroom, 
and you know some sort of special need or whatever it might be and and they can't do it and the parents are this and that and there's just all kinds of problems and 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 the basic idea is that the home that they're living in is unfit is improper for the 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 needs of the family and then they send the family away on some vacation to Disneyland or something and they send little videos it's really cool And, and what do they do to the house they usually just tear it down you know you would think maybe they kind of add on or whatever. Usually the first step in the process, at least in the shows that I've seen, is they bring in the big, you know, heavy operating equipment and flatten that baby. Demo. Demo. That's the one part of construction that I'm good at, by the way, if you need any help. Um, demo. And then they, from the ground up, rebuild it. Rebuild it. Make it new. And then they bring the family back and they bring that big bus out and then everybody says... Move that bus. If you haven't seen the show, you're thinking, what are these people doing right now? But that's what they say. They say, move that bus. And they move the bus. And they see this brand new home, beautifully equipped. And the kids go in, and they all have their own room. And the wife goes into the kitchen, and it's always huge. And the husband goes to the workbench or whatever it is, and he can always do what he needs to do there. And, 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 and the point is, is that it's, it's, it's perfectly equipped now to, to do uh, what they need it to do. What Paul is writing about here is extreme makeover, human edition. And, and what he's saying is that you were once dark, darkness, and you were unable to live like this at all. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I recommend not paying much attention to Ephesians chapter 5. It's really not for you. Get, get the point of, of following Jesus first, and then come to this. This really isn't for you. Um, but it is for those who, you know, were once darkness. We were unable to do these things, but now we're light. We've been made light through our conversion, through the, the work of God in our lives and our, His forgiveness and His leadership in our lives. And now because we're light, we, we've, been, we've been remade from the ground up. We've been made new, and we can live in this new life. Now, are we going to still make mistakes? Are we still going to fall short? You know, I'm afraid to tell you this, but we are, most likely. You know, there's going to be uh, there's going to be choices that we make. As long as we live on this earth, we're going to make some choices that are going to fall short of what God would have us to be and to do. I'm going to do that. You're going to do that. But this is the way I like to think about it. What God has done for us has given us uh, an upper hand. It's given us a fighting chance. And there are far too many Christians in our world today who just look at sin and they or temptation. And they say, ah, well, I'm going to give in. I might as well just do it. I might as well just kind of get on with it. And not enough who say the power of God is greater than the power that is in this world. And if he's in me, then I can stand up against that temptation. And the Bible even says there is no temptation that isn't common to man, that he can't, won't give us a way out whenever we face it. I mean, I mean, I think the scripture talks to us about this. And so we need to think that we can have this fighting chance. But it's only, it's only if we have the belief in the possibility that God will transform us and equip us. And when he does this, the last truth that I just want to bring out is this truth that, that there is always the hope of a fresh start. Always the hope of a fresh start. Wherever we've been, whatever we've done, no matter how many twists and turns, no matter how many detours or roadblocks or dead ends that you've come up against, there's always an opportunity for a fresh start to start going straight ahead. Start making a new direction and becoming the person that God would have you to be and getting to the destination that God would have you to arrive at. It's never too late for a fresh start. I love the words that he says, and and, uh, I'll just kind of wrap it with these words, but he says, verse 16, making the most of every opportunity. 
because the days are evil. Uh, too many of us have already wasted too many opportunities. It, you know, we, we just missed, but there's nothing we can do about those missed opportunities at this point. Please do not dwell on the missed opportunities. I love our, our evangelist a few years ago, he talked about the fact that, you know, the, your, your front windshield is about 20 times bigger than your rear view mirror. And that's on purpose. Get your eyes out of the rear view mirror and the missed opportunities and get them in the windshield and the opportunities that are coming up before you in days to come. We have tremendous opportunities to be the people of God, to live a morally excellent life, to live a transformed life. And I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of living to do in this life. And I don't care how many years you think you might have left, you've got a lot of living yet to do as well. You've got a lot of people to love. You've got a, a family and friends to care for. You've got a world to touch. You've got people who are lost in their sin that, that need your embrace and your, your testimony and, and your example. We've got a lot yet to do, and we dare not miss an opportunity. And the thing is that if we let it, this world and all its evil, he said that, for the days are evil, if we let it, this world will rob us of those opportunities. And the way it will rob us of those opportunities is it will trip us into these moral, uh, immoral decisions. One of the ways, at least. And will put us behind. It will get us off track. And we'll miss those opportunities. So what he's saying here again is just you know, make the most of every opportunity. The days are evil, yes. But as we live and make every moral decision, like today, you'll be confronted with probably two or three, if not 200, moral choices. And there's, and there's really big ones. You know, some of you are caught up in some immorality right now. And nobody knows about it. And maybe you just need to hear this today. There's a hope for a fresh start. Some of you are, are just caught up in this one big thing maybe that you just know is wrong, but you're doing it anyway. And God wants to help you with that. He wants to give you a fresh start. He wants you to begin to take advantage of the opportunities that you've been given. Now, the rest of us, or, or maybe some of us, are in this position where maybe most of us are like that first thing, really. But, but many of us are in this deal where we're just living from moment to moment, and we're just confronted. We're just pummeled by moral decisions, by who we're going to be as we follow after God. And, and with each one, whether it's really big or whether it's really small, with each one, what I believe, when we make a good one, you know what we do? We, we push back against this the evil in, in the world in which we live. The, the evil climate that just surrounds us, that, that our world is, is caught up in. When, with every godly moral decision you make and I make, and here's, the, here's the, the great thing. What might happen if we took this seriously? What might happen if we actually listened to the Bible and, and you know, didn't just take it as suggestion, but took it as, as instruction and command and began to live this way, and you began to make just healthy moral choices strengthened by God. And I began to do that, and you began to do that, and you began, and, and suddenly we have a community of believers who are living this way, transformed by the grace of God, morally excellent lives, not so that we can sit around and pat each other on the back and talk about how moral we are. Hey, you're really moral. No. No. But so that we can be the vibrant testimony, pushing back, against the evil in our world, and set an example for those who do not yet know our saving, transforming, 
empowering God. And I can think of no greater invitation than that. So I want you to think with me just for a moment. What's, what's the hint of immorality in your life today? What's the hint? Is it, uh, is it what comes across your computer screen? Is it the magazines that come into your home? Is it the TV? Is it the inappropriate conversations that you're having with just friends or with people of the opposite gender? Uh, what's the hint? Because I want you to, oh man, just pay attention to the hint because the hint becomes more and more if we're not careful. Stop it at the hint. So think about it. What is it? And then, and then just think with me as well as about, about the movement from darkness to light. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you are light. That is your identity. It is. And now the power of God wants to come alongside you to help you live into that identity. No criticism or condemnation by any means. No judgment here at all today. Just simply become who you are. Just become who you are in, in action as you are in identity. And then, and then very simply, just um, some of you just need to say, I'm getting my eyes off the rearview mirror and into the windshield. I've made enough mistakes. There's a fresh start ahead. And today, I'm grabbing hold of it. All right? So would you stand with me? And the worship team is going to come and lead us in a little song. And, and uh, it's a song of dedication. It really is a song of commitment. And, and I want just to sing it. And as they lead it, for us, for us to be ready to respond. Some of you might even want to come and kneel here. Some of you might want to just pray with me for a moment after the service. Some of you just right where you're standing just need to say, God, what's the hint of immorality? So let's pray together. Father, thank you that even in these moments you can do that. Shine your, your spotlight, your floodlight into our souls and into every crack and crevice of our lives and and point out to us where those hints of immorality are that can so quickly bloom into something so much more devastating. And even those hints can be so devastating. So help us to count the cost both for ourselves and for our families and for the kingdom about our immoral choices. But help us to, to not only act out of, out of fear or, or what ifs, but act in, in moral ways because of what you've done for us. You've, you've brought us from darkness to light. We're new people. Help us to live into that identity. And for those here this morning who just need to say, enough's enough. The past is behind me. I'm starting fresh. Thank you, God, that you make that possible. Thank you to, that today is the first day of the rest of our journey. And uh, you're leading us by the power of your Holy Spirit to the destination that you have in mind. And we want nothing more than to get there safely as we walk hand in hand with you. So help us to make the right turns. Help us to go straight ahead, even today. And to help us to make the decisions and the the uh, commitments to you and to, to live in relationship with you even now that will help us to get there. Thank you for this wonderful group of folks and uh, for the, them being willing to listen to a message that isn't so perhaps easy to hear but is so important for us to hear today and help us to respond to you even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what Jesus says. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, 
and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Straight ahead, friends. Straight ahead. God bless you. Go in his peace. If you'd like to pray, come and do it. If you're